my goal is to basically be AWS, but for the developers in the sense that like my five-man SRE team can support 10 developers. It can support a thousand developers. What is up, everyone, and thanks for tuning in. In today's podcast, we speak to Hans Connect, with whom we talk about his amazing experience as an SRE and his work building world-class developer experience platforms at Capital One and Mission Lane. We also talk about what it takes to be an SRE in today's mission-critical world and his advice to folks who want to get into the space. So pump up that volume and get ready for an insightful conversation with Hans Connect. So welcome to the podcast, Hans. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. So I'm generally fascinated by second names that people have, right? So I was looking up and trying to figure out how to say your name. So it came as uh, Nect, right? That's how I say it? Uh, It's Connect, like Connect 4. Connect, like Connect, right? So I was fascinated and I was going and I was researching on how to say that. And while I was researching, I also found that if you go to the English meaning of Connect means is night. Is that how you relate to in, uh, you know, tell me the origins of that. Yeah, so so Connect is uh, originally a German last name, and it means, uh, well, so there's a couple of definitions, but it either means servant or mercenary or knight, depending on who you're talking to at a particular moment in time. And so, um, yeah, yeah, my it's from like the 16 or 1500s on my dad's side and kept it the whole time apparently. So, yeah. Oh, it's awesome because it's contextually uh, pretty awesome that we have you on the podcast. And if we go with the um, meaning with night, like I feel like SREs and platform engineers and what they do are basically knights uh, in technical, (laughs) uh, in companies, you know? So it's, it's fascinating, uh, to, for you to have a team like that. And then you working as an SRE and, uh, an expert in the space. So, uh, welcome to the podcast. Uh, Hans Knight is what I should say, an expert SRE. (laughs) Thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on, man. So, um, as we begin, you know, um, tell the uh, audience who's listening, um, uh, give, give us a little bit of a background on, you know, what you do, what you're up to nowadays, and what's your current role, uh, what's kicking? Yeah, sure, absolutely. Um, yeah, a little bit of background. I have been doing uh, some form of kind of platform engineering or SRE work for the last eight or nine years. Um, before that, I was kind of a Linux admin and uh, discovered I hated doing things more than once, so I learned how to program. Um, and so then I kind of moved into the, how do I build a platform for developers to use and, and spend time with, um, throughout that I've, I've worked in a variety of kind of clouds, um, AWS, GCP primarily, but also, you know, building private clouds for people. How do we make uh, kind of on-prem or hybrid clouds work? Um, and focused on a variety of kind of pieces of tooling, the, the latest I've spent kind of last four or five years working with Kubernetes, but before that, I've, I've worked with kind of building platforms on Open Cloud and Proxmox and Hyper-V and, and kind of all kinds of uh, all kinds of different technology. Um, nowadays, I'm uh, figuring out what I kind of want to do. Uh, I'm broadly helping a couple of companies with uh, SRE work, trying to spend some time um, figuring out how to how to best deliver a platform, how to best f- think about SRE work. Um, 
And spending a lot of time correcting open source Helm charts. Uh, it's a pet peeve of mine whenever I have to install a Helm chart and they don't have the correct thing. So I'll go go fix it for them. And then uh, anyway, yeah. So that's what I've been spending kind of the recent time doing. Well, that's awesome. Because uh, when you said open cloud, it kind of uh, hit me because uh, how, is it still around? Like, are people still using that? Like, you know. No idea. No idea. I last used it uh, six years ago. I, I, I mean, I hope it is. It was a really cool little piece of software. Um, yeah, it was way simpler than OpenStack, um, but and easier to get up and running for kind of a little company. Uh, but yeah, I have no idea if they're if they're still around. I haven't looked. I'll have to go check after this. Yeah, it's it's fascinating because I used to work for a company called SunGuard Availability Services, and they would provide like uh, you know disaster recovery as a solution. And um, and again, same timeline, right? Around seven, eight years ago. Um, I know I know that some people in the company were kind of using open cloud and I would go and talk to them. I'm like, what's this about, you know? I think at the same time we had, um, you know, Kubernetes kind of becoming a project and a lot of people were getting into that as well. So there was like, I remember there was a discussion around, uh, you know, what should we focus our engineering efforts or, you know, our brain efforts on? So it's fascinating to know uh, someone else <laughs> who has touched open, open cloud and open stack stuff. So it's cool. Yeah, it's been a while. Kubernetes certainly won out in the end, uh, kind of universally, uh, I think, for some really compelling reasons. Even though it doesn't match every use case, I think it has a lot of compelling reasons for why it kind of won out. So, yeah. Yeah, it's fascinating. So, um, you know, when um, you you were talk, talking, right, I was thinking, uh, right, uh, everybody has like an origin story, like, uh, you know, and so in your case, you know, a young Hans, you know, um, how did you... But where, where you were like 10, 20 years ago, how did you decide like this is what you wanted to do? How did like it, it, give, give me a brief introduction to what led you to where you are today? Yeah, sure. Um, I, I think the primary driver is that I'm an incredibly lazy person. And so I Which hate not, doing <laughs> um, I hate doing the same thing more than once. Uh, and so. I started off uh, kind of all the way back in college. I was I was doing like help desk stuff, and I kind of transitioned to doing more sysadmin things. Um, stepped away from Windows and into the Linux world. And as I started kind of provisioning these servers, you know, I hated having to click every option by hand every time I racked and stacked a server and plugged it in. Um, so I learned how to do things like, hey, let's let's do a Pixie boot and kind of serve this image over the network. Um, let's start using tools like Ansible uh, back in like 2014 to and 2013 to like provision these and configure them so I didn't have to manually go in and make the same change multiple times. And then what I quickly discovered is that like that's really cool and all, but I actually also hate hardware and I don't want to... Re- I don't want to. I want to build servers. I don't want to show up to a data center and put servers in a rack. Um, that that's just terribly time consuming and not not super interesting to me. Um, plenty of people out there who it is, but so all power to you. But uh, it wasn't for me. And so then I kind of found this thing called the cloud, and I was like, oh man, someone else will rack and stack the servers for me, and all I have to do is write code that like works on the cloud, and it, it can just anyway. Uh, so I focused on that. So I spent a lot of time kind of learning the cloud, figuring out how this worked. And the thing that interested me the most about the cloud was like, there's a lot of really cool stuff you can build on top of it, but but the primarily, like, how do I help others be more effective at the cloud, right? Coming from like a Linux admin background, I spent a lot of my time already kind of like, 
babysitting how do I help developers deploy their software onto the server? How do we uh, prevent stuff from being thrown over the wall to me? Um, you know, how do I get them secure access so they can deploy stuff? And so started really thinking about this like concept of developer experience and platform engineering and and how do I help them be self-sufficient? Because again, I'm lazy and I, I want to automate myself out of a job. So anytime I have to like the second time someone says, oh yeah, will you go deploy this for me? I'm like, cool, we're writing a script for this. I don't want to have to do this, you know, a, a second time or a third time. So, yeah. Well, that's, a, it, that's an interesting process, uh, you know, thought process because I was just looking up, re- uh, you know, getting ready for a conversation and, you know, I was thinking you've, you've worked with some really interesting companies, uh, you know, like you've worked at Capital One um, and you worked at Capital One in a very early time at Capital One when they were like trying to claw their way up, uh, become successful. And then you've worked at Mission Lane as well, uh, kind of working on some critical projects, right? Uh, so we'll, we'll d- dive into that and kind of understand as to what and how you approach that work. When we were speaking last time, uh, you said, you know, uh, that if it wasn't for being an SRE or a platform engineer, you would do this work for free, you know? Uh, so tell the audience as to, uh, and there's so many younger people who are uh, trying to learn this space or getting into this, right? Like, what what motivates you to do that for free? <laughs> you know, I I don't know. There's there's something there's something incredibly satisfying about basically building, you know, building something and having it work and having it work in more than just my local machine. Like one of the things that I just it, I don't know, it, inefficiency kind of really bothers me, like on a fundamental level. I'm like, ah, let's fix this inefficiency. And so, you know, if I wasn't doing this for a living, like if I was, I don't know, being a lawyer or something, but I still had this as a, we'll call it a side hobby, um, you know, I would, I would still genuinely enjoy like, oh, the piece of software that I'm using isn't being run effectively. Like, oh, I'm deploying next cloud or own cloud or something to run my own Dropbox equivalent, right? Okay, how do I do that effectively? How do I do that efficiently? Can I you you know can I build on top of maybe the the Docker Compose file I use or the Helm chart that I use? You know, and I w- I wouldn't be as sophisticated as you know obviously because now I do it for a living. I spend a lot more time in it, but but like genuinely. In my free time on the weekends, you'll find me like, oh, yeah, here's a Helm chart I used this week. Let me go fix that for you so that other people don't kind of run into this run into this problem. And I think that is one of kind of the key characteristics that, that combine that that uh, or that is shared amongst platform, you know, platform engineers that I've worked with that are incredibly smart and incredibly good is um, call it like the, the scouting mentality of you know, leave it better than, than the way you found it. Like the, the kind of the ability to say, yeah, this was a terrible experience, but not leave it there. Be like, how am I going to fix this kind of for the next person? How am I going to improve this? And so um, that, that kind of drive to, yeah, I'm going to leave it better off than I found it. I'm going to clean up after myself and someone else. I'm going to help someone else out. Uh, I think is kind of a key component of being a successful platform engineer when, when your customers are the developers, right? I think in in what you said, right, I was just trying to understand, is also the idea of how the open source community really works, right? Like, and especially in the last decade and more, we have seen like how lots of folks have built amazing open source projects now that people have adopted and have started using in enterprises, right? And to have that heart or that philosophy of taking something that you're given, improving it for the next person, 
is fascinating, right? And uh, um, just to, something to add to that is also that I was speaking to another gentleman um, about a week ago, uh, whose name is Christopher Sura. He is a PWC, he, uh, you know, um, you know, director there, and he was saying that. When he talks to people today, he's like, well, 20 years ago, you had to build your own database, write your own database. And today we are better off having all these open source technologies. So it's like a fascinating uh, time. But I'm very thankful for people like you who are part of these communities who are very much focused on taking something that is available to them, improving it and passing it on to the next uh, uh, you know, person. So that's awesome. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. I think I mean, I think that's, it's really important. It's really cool. We get all this cool technology and, and we get really specialized technology, right? Like if you need a piece of technology, um, it's almost certainly kind of some implementation is already written, right? Uh, I mean, we're, we're on a CockroachDB uh, podcast. There's their CockroachDB is a database that solves a really specific use case and helps companies. And I don't have to rewrite the problem and a solution to the problem. I don't have to rewrite the solution that Postgres solves. I don't have to rewrite the solution that Elasticsearch solves. Like, uh, so I don't have to reinvent that. And and I kind of see it as then my responsibility. Okay, I don't have to reinvent that, but I sh- you know my way of now giving back and supporting is is going and improving kind of the experience, improving. And, and it can be as simple as documentation. Like, I, I think one of the things, especially when you're brand new, that is overlooked is documentation is almost always written by people who are experts. And I cannot tell you the number of projects that I run into, even as a 10-year veteran, where I'm like, I have no idea what this means. This this piece of documentation is completely pointless to me. I do not understand. I don't have the context. I don't have any. And so when you as kind of a brand new person interacting with the project, you're like, oh, I didn't have the context for what this meant. I didn't know when I needed this piece of documentation. Like going and adding that back, it, you know, it, it's not the most technical work out there. You're not committing core code, but it's incredibly valuable even to, you know, people like me who are who have tons of experiences we come through and are like, I have no idea what, what I'm supposed to do with this, right? And so being able to give back kind of no matter your level, I think is, is really important. So so when you were saying that, I was thinking like writing documentation is definitely an art, right? Like it's it's not somebody that everybody is gifted with. Like I've had those challenges myself where I am, like for example, recently I was trying, we were trying to look at a project that's available open source for like building Killer Coda. And there was another company who has written some open source code and it works. We know it works. I looked at the project. There is no documentation available on how to get it started. <laughs> there is information on the Helm chart and the Docker compose file and stuff like that. But when I'm trying to deploy this, there is no information on how to get it running. And it was a really frustrating process. And I actually stopped using that project because I was like, I don't have the patience to, at least with my schedule right now, to go after write tickets and ask someone or wait for someone to respond. I think I feel like there are also situations where so many people leave something because of poor documentation, right? Um, yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think, you know, there, there's a saying out there for jobs, right? That people don't quit a bad job, they quit a bad manager. And the same is true for platforms. Like people don't quit a bad platform, they quit an undocumented platform because people are willing to live with like bad platforms. There are plenty of bad platforms out there. Lots of people have used them, right? Um, I'll complain about AWS's UX all the time. Like, this is a terrible user experience. But there's virtually nothing in the world that is better documented than 
like some of the AWS APIs. Like I cannot beat some of their documentation. And they spend a lot of time and a lot of emphasis on, hey, let's generate documentation. Let's have it be available, whether it's through the Bogo project or directly on their website, like way better documented than nearly everything else out there. And people aren't quitting AWS despite their terrible user experience because they have good, you can figure out how to use it, right? And, And utilize it. I think uh, with AWS specifically, uh, I mean, I love the documentation, but I, I hate searching for that documentation. That's the problem. So when we look at the, the overarching goal of any user or you know, operator or engineer trying to use a technology, the fundamental objectives, at least I see it in three ways, is that, hey, you should have the, the product to do what it should do. Then you should have a supporting document for how it should work, and okay, if you have any issues, how to solve that, and uh, and then you should be able to find that, you know, um, easily. Um, and especially in the last decade, I've seen some really good projects with good documentation. Uh, like Stripe is a great example. Like the Stripe project had a really good documentation page, and I think pretty much everybody kind of adopted that methodology and started doing their documentation that way. Uh, I think Kubernetes also became like a place where good documentation was. Initially difficult to find, but now it's 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 really at a good place, right? Yeah. So let me pivot to this. Um, I wanted to ask you: Did you first get into uh, cloud, or uh, or were you first involved in you know the open Kubernetes project? Which came first for you? Was it? I, I went to the cloud before I went to Kubernetes. So I uh, will you know, mea culpa, raised my hand. I was like, yeah, Kubernetes isn't going anywhere. I don't know what you're talking about. Like we have we have other containerization orchestrators, like it's fine. I'll use ECS or I'll use Nomad or, or something like that, which, you know, in their in their respect are great projects. But um, but but yeah, now I prefer Kubernetes. But yeah, I, di- I did cloud before I stepped into the Kubernetes space. Got it. So was that around, uh, was it at Capital One? That's where you got involved. Tell us more about that experience, actually. Yeah, so uh, I, I did get involved a little bit in the cloud before I hit, before I hit Capital One. But um, yeah, at Capital One, I was hired uh, basically as the first platform engineer, not for Capital One, but, but for kind of our little division um, and our little area. Uh, before that, they had some contractors supporting it, but they wanted to bring it in-house and figure out, hey, how do we kind of scale this and build this team and how do we support this? Because they were running 250 some odd, or sorry, 125 or 120 some odd kind of microsites. Um, and they were deploying it out by hand. And at, at the time when I joined, they were copy pasting files from their computer into S3 buckets and then clearing the Cloudflare, uh, uh, the CDN, to say, hey, I want to uh, serve the new site. And then if something failed, they had to hope that they had a backup on their computer that they could then copy back because they, anyway. Um, and so I was hired to basically- Like kind of scenario. That, yeah, yeah, no, it's, it's incredibly uncommon. I've never heard of it before. Uh, <laughs> but, but yeah, I, I was hired to basically fix that. Like, hey, come in and show us how to, how to kind of do this properly. And so- uh, by the end of the time, we were a team of five, and by the end of my time there, we were, we were a team of five. Um, we supported both those sites and basically the entire CDN for Capital One had a had an internal CDN um, that we we built out uh, and that we supported and deployed, and we ran all of that on ECS um, at the time, and we you know 
spent a bunch of time on kind of the develop again on the developer and operator experience. Uh, one, of, one of my core memories from from Capital One, it's terrifying in the moment. So, um, but now I can look back at it and laugh. Is back in like 2018, early or mid 2018. Uh, there was a mistake in a piece of code called Cloud Custodian, which is a really cool t- piece of technology. It handles kind of uh, applying cloud rules for you and, and does stuff. Capital One wrote it. Uh, there was a mistake in that code. And they rolled it out and had told Cloud Custodian to delete all instances without a particular tag. And they rolled that to prod without that tag being there. And so I am in the prod console for Capital One it, for shared tech, and I saw 80,000 instances disappear in front of me. And I was like, did I do something wrong? Oh my gosh, I clicked something, I broke something, like, this is terrifying. Um, and I remember it was it was like a 12-hour call to get Capital One all the way back up because we had stuff like, uh, you you know, a lot of teams have built their Terraform around running it from Jenkins. And when you built, run it from Jenkins, you have to wait for Jenkins to come back up. And so they had to wait like two hours before Jenkins could come back up. But then you all of a sudden had like 10,000 engineers trying to stand up their product at the same time. And so now Jenkins is over full and it falls back over and then you have to wait for it to come back. Anyway, it's like a 16-hour incident. Um, but I remember our team was back up in four minutes. Because we were able to run Terraform from local. And so we just ran Terraform apply, pushed it up, and everything came back up. And, and we built our system to be able to kind of reboot from the ground up like that. And so it took like four minutes for our team to be back up. Um, and that was like a really defining, it was like the culmination of, hey, we spent the last two years building this. And we just saw it work. Like this was proof that like we had done the right thing kind of throughout throughout that. Yeah. So you were saying like uh, this, when you did that, that 80,000 notes just disappeared in front of you. And, um, you know, you also had a scenario where, I mean, there's there are overlapping dependencies between different software, like Jenkins and stuff like that. How did you go about figuring out like, okay, this is missing and we need to f- solve this out. I know you had this 12 hour call, but what was the immediate like, reaction to, okay, where should I go and look for the first, uh, you know, response? Yeah, well, so so that's a really tricky part. So one of the things that I mean, the the answer is, you almost work backwards in that scenario. You're like, oh, I want my website back, or I want my software back up. Okay, what is the first thing I have to do to do that? Can I run it locally? No, I can't run it locally. Why can't I run it locally? Ah, oh, we're dependent on this and this from Jenkins. Okay, I have to stand Jenkins back up. So so you you, you kind of have to work backwards unless you have a really deep and kind of intimate knowledge of of the whole stack. Um, yeah, it, it, the the problem with that, or or like I don't know, it exposed kind of a fundamental assumption that the people in platform engineering are absolutely guilty of making, which is that a system is always going to be available to you. Like, and and sometimes we assume this about the silliest systems, and sometimes we assume it about really core systems. Like, people assumed that there wouldn't be a scenario where Jenkins was down. And they needed to deploy their software critically at that same moment. Um, that like wasn't kind of a, a conversation that had been had. Or uh, I know other companies who, or other times where we've assumed, hey, our, um, you know, m- maybe like we've integrated Jira or some type of ticketing software into our promotion pipeline and our, our CD pipeline to let people approve it. Well, what happens when that's down? 
Now you can't release, and all of a sudden you might want to release because someone just accidentally deleted 80,000 instances. Uh, uh, and, and so it, to me, one of the things that it highlights is when you're building CI pipelines, basically, and you're building CD pipelines, you should only ever be abstracting things that are theoretically possible to run on your local machine. You, you shouldn't be building things that you can't do uh, on your own. You should, you should be basically wrapping, here's what I would do as a human to, to kind of push this out and manage it. Because otherwise you end up in, in these very complex dependency graphs and you're spending 12, 16 hours on a phone call trying to figure out how, how you're supposed to deploy your software. Got it. Yeah. So you brought up a really good point. Like uh, even when you were talking about the uh, whole experience at you know Capital, when you're talking about creating a developer experience and an operator experience, right? And I know at Mission Lane you owned that function of developer experience for specifically for GCP. But uh, for folks who are listening and who don't understand what does developer experience kind of entail, uh, uh, you know, expand that for us a little bit and kind of help people understand that a bit. Sure. Yeah. Um, well, so developer experience is how how do I as a developer do a thing on your platform? It doesn't matter what it is, but but like broadly, it's how do I do a thing, and that can be anything as simple as how do I get logs for my application to really complex things like how do I log in and troubleshoot restart a container? How do I stand up a new uh, S3 or GCS bucket? How do I um, how do I find documentation on how to use a CLI? How do I provision a completely new application? Um, but, but no matter what it is, kind of developer experience broadly is how do I do a thing and how easy is it to do the thing? And then how, like, how, are, how are you helping me do the thing, right? Those are kind of the three core components of building good developer experiences, kind of focusing on, on that. Got it, yeah. And so when individuals try to like connect with your team and think about creating this experience or using or leveraging that experience that your team and you are building, do you get involved where they come to you and say, they're like, well, we need help and coaching on selecting a specific product for their architecture, for their solution that they're building? Yeah. Yeah. So this, okay. Uh, this gets to like a broader question in SRE and cl platform engineering that I think people have been having for a long time now. So um, a while back, uh, nearly a decade, um, AWS released their cloud center of excellence model and they put out this white paper and it was really good. It's a really good model, right? But it, it kind of assumes that, hey, you're going to build a core set of expertise that is going to provide recommendations out for people on how to use the cloud, how to use your, your developer platform. And we can extend that to developer platform in this case, right? How are they supposed to use Kubernetes and how are they supposed to use your CI pipeline, stuff like that. Um, but the problem with a cloud center of excellence is that it kind of, especially a bigger company, very quickly turns into an ivory tower academic kind of problem of, hey, the Cloud Center of Excellence said that we're supposed to use ECS, except ECS doesn't support the stuff we need it to. And so now we want to use Kubernetes, but it's such a massive pain to go through and get approval for Kubernetes because the Cloud Center of Excellence said no, ECS. Um, or vice versa, right? Someone might want to use ECS when, when you have Kubernetes available. And there's good arguments back and forth. But, but more of the general point is like, it can be very ivory tower-esque and feel like, ah, these people who don't implement anything are telling you what to do. 
on the other hand, you have a or an embedded kind of cloud engineer, DevOps engineer model where where you put a developer into a team full time and they just handle all the DevOps and cloud engineering tickets and, and they just solve it. Hey, look, we need to deploy out. We need to write a new Helm chart. We need to uh, whatever it is. Right. We, we can we can rely on this person to kind of help out. And the thing I found is that they both have really strong upsides. Cloud Center of Excellence basically says, let's define common patterns. Let's help make sure we're not rebuilding the same thing 100 times. Let's like it's really good. And the developer, uh, the the embedded version, which is basically kind of what you're asking about originally is like how do developers come and ask, hey, what are we supposed to use? We need someone who knows the product well enough to give them real advice. Um, that, that's really good for that. The embedded kind of DevOps engineer or, or cloud engineer to go help them. Uh, but there's real downsides. I talked about the Cloud Center one. That's the ivory tower problem. The, the problem with the embedded person is if you leave them there forever, the team just throws it over the wall to them. Inevitably, the developers are just like, oh yeah, so-and-so will handle it for us. He's our, he, there are, there are DevOps engineer or cloud engineer or, or whatever. Um, and that's also a bad thing because you want to enable your developers to be self-service and make these decisions on their own and figure it out. And so at Mission Lane, um, we basically, we did both. Um, and we, but we, we kind of, tried to mitigate the the downsides of both. And so what we did is we had a core SRE team and we had a core cloud platform engineering team. Um, together, we were a whole kind of platform team, right, uh, organization. And the SRE team, besides owning developer experience, also did short-term embeds. And so we would go out and embed for like four weeks with a team and then we would come back and keep working as like kind of the cloud center of excellence. And then we'd go out to embed for four weeks and come back. And it was never the same person who would go embed with the same team two times in a row so that they didn't rely on that one individual. But it really meant that we could go out and find out what problems are they having? Wh- how are they trying to solve them? Um, how are they working with our platform on a day-to-day basis? Uh you know all of all of the stuff that like doesn't come up when someone just comes and asks you um, how how to use your platform, and so I found that model to be most efficient because you then get people who can set common patterns and can come back from an embed and say, oh yeah, we need to solve this problem because I've seen three teams have this problem, right? Um, and that helps you also kind of stay involved in their architectural decisions. They trust you. You can say, hey, uh, we're tr- we're thinking about trying to figure out how to do caching. Should we use Redis or Memcached? Hey, we're trying to think of how we should be deploying our containers and doing uh, canary releases. What should we be using? And, and because you have built up trust in the SRE team as a whole, not just the individuals, they feel comfortable coming and talking to any member of the team and, and kind of having that input. Well, that's a very interesting point that you brought up, right? Is if that collaboration is really important, right? Like, and uh, I've had experience, like I've done development myself. And, you know, I have a tendency that I am single-mindedly focused as a developer, or and I'm pretty sure this is true for many, many people, is that we are looking at, oh, well, this is what I need to solve. So I need to do, like, build an API that can then be deployed in Node or can then work, uh, uh, you know, and solve that specific problem. And then while I'm doing that, I'm not thinking about how it d- works on a scalable database. How it's going to work six months from now, how your develop deployment experience is going to be. You're not thinking about any of that. You don't care about that 
in the slightest. Yeah. Yeah. So, so the, so the, I would say the duality of being a developer is one, you're really good at solving that problem. Two, you're really bad at looking at it long term in in the grand perspective, and that's where I feel architects and SREs, uh, especially the function of SREs, has as it has developed and kind of modeled out in the last ten years, is so critical for enterprises, right? So we'll dive into that second part of the evolution of an SRE, but I really wanted to understand your perspective on going and talking to a developer uh, and talking to them about scale or designing applications for resilience and uh, stuff like that. Uh, Because especially in the last seven, six years, we know that mission critical applications are sort of distributed uh, like with Kubernetes containers and things like that. And they have to come up and down without you getting involved, right? So how do you go and have that conversation? What's your perspective on it? Yeah, so... I'll say up front, this is actually not a technical conversation. And I think that's where people fall short a lot of the time when they're coming as a platform engineer. This is not at all a technical conversation. When you're having a conversation about what type of resiliency do we want to have? Do we want high availability for this? What type of downtime do we want to spend? This is actually a business conversation. And so this is a let's go to the developer and have a conversation about how critical is your application? Uh, at Mission Lang, we we had a tiering system, and we so we 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 did this. Uh, tier zero was: Does the CEO know the moment your application is down? Cool, that's tier zero. Now we have a particular target. Tier one is: The CEO will eventually care that your application is down. He'll eventually find out. And tier two is. The CEO is never going to care if your application is down. And and what that allowed us to do is basically both like put the business context into perspective, because I think as a developer, you're always like, oh, yeah, I want the highest availability. I want the I I just like, yeah, let's go for it. Um, And the business side is always like, yeah, I mean, how much is it going to hurt us? What is this going to matter? And so being able to put it in perspective of like how how annoyed do you want the CEO at you when your application is down? How annoyed is, are they going to be? Tells you like kind of your resiliency level that you should be shooting for and, and really sets the tone because then you can have a conversation about how much engineering effort are you willing to dedicate to build a resilient application? And you can have that conversation with the business team because the people you almost certainly have to convince is not the engineers. The developers are going to come back and say, oh, yeah, we should totally be four nines or, oh, yeah, we should totally have high availability. Yeah, because I don't want to get paged in the middle of the night because something is broken. Like, yes, we should have it fix itself. But, you know, you have third party dependencies, you have third party APIs, you have other downstream dependencies, you have uh, just the raw SLAs of your cloud provider, you have all of these factors that go into that. And you can build resiliency around all of them. They're all solvable, but they take away engineering time and they take engineering time that you otherwise would put on delivering features and delivering bug fixes and other stuff. And so having that conversation, basically, that's kind of my perspective. My perspective is this is not a technical conversation. This is a show up to business and have a conversation about how much time when you when business says, oh, yeah, we want 100 percent uptime. And I say, cool, are you ready to pause feature development for the next year to deliver that? And they say, no. And I say, then you don't want 100% uptime. You want something less than 100% uptime. And because it's a business conversation, right? Like, that's all it is. I agree. I think I've, you know, when you were saying it was like a light bulb moment for me too, you know, like typically when I look at solutions and trying to deploy it, I'm thinking from an end user point of view, right? Which which makes sense. But 
what you brought was really profound in the way that I hey, think about, do you want your CEO to get involved at this level? And that was really, I think it's a very wise way uh, of looking at that business outcome and business objective and mapping that out to, you know, how you're building infrastructure and resiliency and scale, right? So fascinating, really good. Well, and I think it, uh, just to add on, I, like one of the benefits for us was that it meant like a core concept of of SRE, and especially if you go read like the Google uh, book right on SRE the the that they published, uh, one of the concepts they say in there is you can't be more reliable than your upstream service. So if your upstream service is three nines, then if you just use it raw, you can never be more reliable than three nines because it will go down and then you go down and then you're not reliable more than three nines. Um, and, and that extends to our internal services. And so what was helpful about framing it as how much the CEO cares about your application being down was that all of a sudden we could say to a to a business team who was like, oh, yeah, this other service wants to use our, our service A, service B wants to use it. And we say service B is a tier zero service. The CEO cares when that service is down. Are you ready to be a tier zero service and also have the CEO care when your service is down? Or or do we need to look at this implementation so that they're not critically, you're not a critical dependency or, or figure, because it helps, again, frame a very complicated conversation, in my opinion, one that very few people have, but is really important is basically internal dependencies Make sure we don't have dependency loops. Make sure we're depending on the right, you know, all, solving all of those problems uh, is helpful when you frame it really simply as how much does the CEO care when your application is down? Yeah, I mean, that's that's a really brilliant perspective. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm going to copy paste and kind of steal that idea. <laughs> but, that's good. I appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's good. I mean, you won't believe the amount of uh, great conversations that I've had on the podcast, like the, the little time I've done this. And what I've learned from people is valuable. And, you know, and it's, it's, it's stuff that you hear from each other that really enhances everything that we do. Back in the day, to me, I always thought that this SRE, the pri- priority was always like, make it's spelled like plumbing, right? Make sure everything is working. There's no issues. But over the last decade, what I've seen is SRE role has become more significant and important for enterprises. And people have started to realize how important that is. And there's more value. And not just the fact that there's value, there is a thought leadership associated with how you bring uh, that value out to the company or wherever you're working. And what you just shared was a really profound uh, perspective on how we should be looking at SRE stuff, right? So what I wanted to understand was from you is you've been doing this for almost a decade now, right? Uh, And it's been fascinating for you to do this across multiple companies. What is it that enterprises don't do correctly or how do they make mistakes uh, when they're maybe either hiring an SRE or the work that an SRE does or what they expect from them? Oh, man, I could talk all day on on this particular topic. Um, We don't have all day, but I will I will try to be brief. I'll say actually first, I still consider myself a plumber. Um, I actually, my Slack picture is still a Mar- Mario popping out of a, a little pipe because I, I just work on pipelines all day. Like this is all I do. Um, uh, so I still, I call myself, like when someone asks me, oh, what do you do? I'm I'm a plumber for the internet. It's fine. Uh, but, but I think the problem that companies make when they hire an SRE is that they hire people whose goal 
is not, and the work that they give them is not to make things self-service. I think too many companies spend their time trying to have an SRE automate a job that an SRE already was doing rather than having an SRE come up with a way for the developer to do the job that the SRE is already doing. I, I think like we learned a long time ago that developers shouldn't just throw things over the wall to SREs or to, well, at the time, sysadmins. You shouldn't just throw it over the wall to them because we have no context for how things are breaking and why things are breaking and how that, you know, all of that. It and, and what I've seen is that there are plenty of companies who do that same thing, but with SREs, with platform engineers. They basically say, Ah, uh, yeah, you guys are first line to respond. You guys are in charge of helping figure out how to do deployments and all of that. And the way people interpret that is I need to go write a script that automates what I was doing, right? I run kubectl apply. Okay, cool. Let's go write a tool that runs kubectl apply. When in reality, you should be saying, how do I let, how do I build a box basically that a developer can do that action in without involving me. Because when you when, when you don't spend time making it self-service, uh, you have to scale the SRE team linearly with however many developers you add. If you spend time making it self-service, you don't have to do that. One SRE can support nearly an infinite number of developers. My favorite example of this is, is cloud providers. AWS does not hire a new engineer every time they add a new customer because they have to like go automate how to stand up an account and stuff like that. They don't do that. They give you an API and let you take care of everything yourself and build on top of it yourself. And, and the same should hold true for us. Like when you're when when I as an SRE am building a developer platform, my goal is to basically be AWS, but for the developers in the sense that like. My five-man SRE team can support 10 developers. It can support 1,000 developers. We don't really care a whole ton about that because we have built it so you all can do what you need to. And then you just come ask us for help, right? Like basically for cons uh, like for consulting on how do I build my application or how do I use this? And then we improve the documentation and we roll forward. But like, I think that is, that is the biggest problem I've seen is, is basically... People are hiring either sysadmins who aren't focused on this or they're giving them work um, that isn't focused on this. They're just like, oh, yeah, go fix why this thing isn't working. I'm like, that, stop, stop, like make it so the developers can can go solve a thing. At Mission Lane, for example, on, on this topic, developers have access all the way up to production. They have read-only access in production, but they handle every aspect of dev through production. They do deployments into each environment. They can look at logs in production. They can even restart pods in production. Um, I mean, we, we limit them from a few things. They can't log in and view customer data in production, for example. Um, they can't SSH into the containers, for example. Uh, but like broadly... They have access all the way up to production. We're not blocking them at all from looking at anything, from do you know, from being able to see because we and and also I, I won't claim credit for for this because uh, you know I I came in and helped with other stuff, but but the cloud platform team, the CPE team at the time, they had built a a system that 
handled that for them. And that, that like the Kubernetes at Mission Lang meant developers could provision their own IEM accounts, their own GCS buckets, their own everything, because we had bu- they had built a system and a box that said, here you go, within this box, you can do stuff. And that I think is like the core critical piece to, to how to build an effective kind of platform team versus just a platform team where you hire a new engineer every six months because you're overwhelmed with KTLO work, right? I think that's a mistake many people are doing, and I couldn't agree more with that kind of a... I mean, people have, uh, or at least some people have a tendency to hire people to patch holes, right? And sometimes that's what it feels like. I mean, fascinating. Thank you so much for sharing that. So so I I always ask, uh, you know, different people on the podcast, like, uh, tell me a fun and or a terrible story uh, of using a cloud product and taking them into production, right? So you already shared one experience where, you know, you had 80,000 instances go crazy. But tell me tell me another instance if you have any. You can choose if you want to go go take it in the fun direction or in the terrible direction. That's, that's your choice. But basically, they deploy their software into customers' Kubernetes clusters. And... And so they basically give them like a Helm chart and, and help them deploy out. But it it's uh, not a SaaS model. It's like a, hey, we're going to go run it on your software because they handle healthcare data, right? And so they want all the data to stay in there. And one of the most frustrating moments of my life was I had just joined and I was trying to, I was trying to help them out. Uh, and they gave me access to the development environment, the, the lower environment, the testing environment for a particular customer. And we had added all these improvements to the Helm chart. We had added like, here's your Nginx ingress so we don't have to use the raw load balancers anymore. We've added things like uh, Argo CD to kind of do Git ops for us. We've, we've added all of these little pieces that we were going to use to improve the customer experience, but also our operator experience. And I tried to install this in the testing environment. And I found out that they only had 16 IP addresses available. So I'm like trying to figure out, and we only had a window because this was really regulated. The company that we were, the customer was really specific. You only have like two hours to do this. And so I'm sitting there trying to figure out how to make like 28 pods or something like that fit in a 16 IP address. And so like live, I'm like ripping out Argo CD. I'm ripping out Nginx. I'm like ripping out all these, I'm disabling all of these improvements that we had made because they literally given us 16 IP addresses for this testing environment. And no one had any idea of this because before they were only running like eight containers or something like that. And now we were running a lot more smaller containers and we made it kind of microservicing. But anyway, I, and I was blown away because I was like, IP addresses in the cloud are free. Just use it use a slash 24 or a slash 16 for the 24 or 16. Yeah. yeah like, I mean, it's isn't that fine? <laughs> um, but yeah, no, it's one of those things that just nobody thought about. Nobody was ever like, Oh yeah, we're going to need more than 16 IP addresses. I'm like, really? Oh, sure. Fine. Okay. Anyway. I mean, that's like one of those things, like it's happened to me. I mean, I wouldn't say this exact problem, but I've, I had instances where I've gone slash 28. At some time, I'm like, I'm like, oh, okay. I need to go back to my Terraform script, change the, uh, to change it to 16. Now I'm like, keep it as default 16, you know, because I never know what I'm going to do later, right? Uh, so, 
Well, and, and, and that's not to say that like IP management is easy. Like I've written IP management tools and I've, I've, I recognize like an enterprise network, you got to divvy up your slash 10 space and your slash 172 space and, and all of that. I, I get all of that. But like 16 IP addresses for a Kubernetes cluster is not enough IP address. I don't care who you are. That's not enough IP addresses. Like pick more. That's true. I mean, that's funny. So you were able to like kind of figure it out and finish it within the two hour window though? Uh, yeah, we we did by ripping out all of our improvements and basically just uh, running this tiny little slimmed down version of our of, of our product uh, because getting them to change and give us more IP addresses was going to be like a four week long process. We had to submit a change requ- change request and then they'd come back and say why and we tell them why. Anyway, it was forever long. We didn't want to deal with that. So yeah, we ripped out a whole bunch of stuff and we got it down to like we got it to fifteen IP addresses. So that we got it to fifteen, which means we can't run a second version of our so- of the software to test it. Like we wanted to test our software, we couldn't run a second version because we only had fifteen IP address. We had one IP address left over. That was it. I mean, process and regulation is a big, uh, you know, pain when you want to try to do innovation. Like that's it's just classic contradictions sitting together. You know, uh, it's wild. So uh, I know you uh, and for our, everybody listening, Hans uh, has a medium blog post where. He has br- some of the fascinating ideas that you've heard from him on the call today. He he does write about them actively and is passionate about giving back, as you can hear. So a question I wanted to ask Hans was, do you have any other places where you do stuff that people can follow you on um, or any project that you're a part of where people can connect with you? I actually, I actually don't. So, so the Medium blog post is basically the only place where you get to hear uh, hear what I think. Um, if you if you can track me down, you might be able to find like a Reddit account or something, a Hacker News account where where, where I share stuff. But but like broadly, kind of that's that's the way I interface. Um, I will say I spend time in in other projects. Like I do spend time in kind of the Istio Slack uh, chat or Slack uh, hangout. I spend time over over with the K6 people for load testing, for the flagger and open telemetry people. Like a lot of these tools uh, I've been using for quite a few years now and happy to kind of give back and answer questions on on how to do stuff and, and how to help, uh, even if I'm not necessarily contributing kind of core code or or doing stuff anymore with them um you know I might, I might be helping out in other ways but but no actually the only form of real social media or or content creation i do is uh is that media blog post uh, like i said i originally told you the first time i've been on a podcast so you know yeah um this is not a common thing for me yeah no i mean that's a fascinating blog post that you have right you know i've, I've i'm reading it now i follow it too so what I wanted to say was if folks, you go and if you want this content and connect with Hans, you can follow his content. And if you are on these Slack channels with uh, Istio and Open Telemetry, and if you see Hans connect on it, just shout out and, how, shout out and say hi and say that yeah, you heard him uh, speak to David. Yeah, come, come, come say hi. I'm, I'm always happy to have a conversation and figure out, you know, help out, see what, I, yeah, or just talk about, talk about this because this is, yeah, this is some of my favorite stuff. I mean, this is awesome. Yeah. So I wanted to ask of, of another question uh, and a few more maybe as we kind of figure out how to wind down today's podcast. It's been fascinating, right? I mean, we can keep talking about stuff like this for three, three four hours, right? I mean, there's so many tangents where we can take this, you know, you have such a beautiful experience. So um, I wanted to ask you, like, uh, for anybody who is in a position where they're like, well, I'm I'm at a crossroad in my career and I'm thinking maybe getting into SRE, 
you know, space, you know, what is your advice to them on, you know, what is it that they should go and learn or follow? Sure. That's a great question. So normally I don't love recommending tooling specifically. I don't love like, hey, you should go learn a specific piece of tooling. But I will say you should probably go learn Kubernetes. Like just just go do it. it. It'll be fine. It's not that hard. I promise you can learn it. It'll be okay. Um, but besides that, I think the big thing to, to recognize is that SRE is actually not normally kind of an entry-level tech position. Like it's not something that you go to as your first job out of college. It's something that you probably end up in kind of coming from with experience because like you like you alluded to part of being an SRE is going and consulting with developers and with platform engineers and trying to help them make decisions and you can only really do that if you have kind of the experience to do it and so if you know if you're sitting at a crossroads um, go learn Kubernetes go follow people like Kelsey Hightower and kind of figure out w- what they're doing go read the, the SRE handbook uh, from Google and, and see if the concepts in there resonate with you. I, I have yet to implement everything that's in the SRE handbook, but I haven't read anything in the SRE handbook and been like, oh no, I completely kind of disagree with that. Like that concept doesn't resonate with, with, with me at all. Um, and then, uh, you know, I'll, I'll plug like, go learn developer experience. I, I think, again, an underrated part of, of the whole platform engineering experience is making it better for developers, learning how to do things like, and and I'll say if you're more experienced, right? Not necessarily for people brand new, but if you're more experienced uh, SRE, go learn how to do things like empathy interviews that help you actually figure out the problems of your developers using your software. Go figure out how, how to do, you know, good CLI design, for example. One of my least favorite things in the world is when I use a CLI and the and the CLI options, nothing makes sense, the flags aren't consistent, you know, all of that. Like, go spend time kind of figuring out, hey, how do I, how do I solve this? Because um, fundamentally, an SRE position is a, how do I automate stuff? How do I, how do I automate things for other developers to use? So if you're learning... Go learn how to automate something. Go write a pipeline. Go go deploy stuff onto Kubernetes. There's really good kind of tutorials out there for how to do all of this. But um, but yeah, yeah, spend the time to learn how to do it in an ergonomic way. That's brilliant. Yeah, I mean, sitting on an ergonomic chair like that and giving that advice is absolutely awesome, Hans. I appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, say, same back to you. We, I love that we share the same chair. I know. I mean, autonomous.ai, come on. Right? That's right. Great. Awesome. Well, thank you, Hans. I just wanted to say for coming on the podcast and for this insightful conversation. And I mean, it's your experience and the way you share things is so bright. And, you know, the, the, the joy that you have for SRE and the work that you do is is brilliant. You know, I hope we can have further conversations, you know, down the line. Uh, but this has been a great first start for us. And also, this was your first ever podcast. So I My mean, first ever podcast. Amazing stuff, you know, getting on a podcast and, you know, kind of opening up uh, your your experience in your life. Uh, so I appreciate it. Yeah, well, I appreciate you guys having having me on and, and you know, uh, offering the opportunity. It, it's a little bit, you know, shocking. I think I'll say, like, I suffer from imposter syndrome, just like a lot of people do. And, and so uh, it's a little bit of validation that, like, hey, I've spent the last 10 years doing something useful is, is when I finally get invited on a podcast. I'm like, yes, I made it. Uh, uh, and so I, I, I appreciate, you know, bringing me on, being a great host. And, and yeah, it's been a lot of fun. Mm-hmm.